BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From Bonnie London Town, this is Obscure Season 4. I will withhold the name of the book just for a few moments as we begin Season 4 of Obscure. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman Esquire. Glad to be rejoining you for a brand new season of Obscure. I am in London, uh, recently in Rome. My six-month European sabbatical is, uh, oh, I don't know, halfway, two-thirds through. It's hard to exactly to determine because I don't yet know when I will be returning home to the United States of America. Rome was terrific. If you've never been, I recommend it. Great city. Great walking city full of historical shit, as you probably know. Just, you know, stuff. Every, any, anytime you turn a corner, oh, there, oh, a pope, a pope uh, was there, and a uh, pope shagged somebody there, and some duke or something was there, and some famous uh, painting is in that church over there, and... Uh, oh, this is where this is where uh, Caesar was killed, and this is these aqueducts were built uh, twenty thousand years ago. You know, it's just it never ends, and it's it's kind of exhilarating. The food is uh, what you would expect. Uh, it's pizza, it's pasta, and variations thereof. The weird thing about Roman restaurants is they're all the same. Like you, you pretty much go into any Roman restaurant, and you're going to get. Varieties on a theme. You're going to get your carbonara. You're going to get your cacio e pepe. You're going to get your, uh, what, maybe some gnocchi, maybe some risotto. You know, you're going to get all kinds of, but it's all going to be basically, you know, the same stuff from restaurant to restaurant to restaurant. And I was reading about this in a book called, oh, geez, what's it, uh, uh, Rome, I think it's called, a, a or maybe it's called, din- I don't know, Dinner in Rome, I think it's maybe it's called, A History of of Rome in a single meal. I'm I'm getting the name wrong, but it's a terrific book. You can probably find it very easily. And one of the points the author makes is that in restaurants all over the world, novelty has become the touchstone. You know, you go to uh, a restaurant to to experience something new, something more theatrical, some variation, some, uh, some new twist. But in Italy, and in Rome specifically, you go for familiarity. 
The restaurants aren't competing to see who can do the newest, greatest, flashiest thing. They're competing to see who can do the best thing of the familiar, you know, the best, the best version of the familiar thing. So, you, so that's why you'll get the same dishes pretty much in every restaurant. And you think to yourself, well, don't you get sick of that, Michael? Don't you get sick of, of all the pasta and the pizza and what have you? And the answer to that question is, yes, you do. Within a week of, or maybe two weeks of arriving in Rome, you know, you think to yourself, I, I, I cannot possibly eat any more pasta. I'm sick to death of pasta. Can't I just find a place with a good goddamn salad? And the answer to that is no, no, not really. Uh, and so you start looking around for other things and maybe you go and you get Mexican one night or Japanese one night or, you know, but then a curious thing happens over time. Uh, I don't know if it's in the water. I don't know if it's in the air, but your body starts demanding pasta. The body starts saying to you, hey, you know, it's fine that, that uh, you know, we're eating chicken cutlets at home here in our little uh, uh, apartment in uh, Trastevere, but wh wh where's the pasta, Michael? We need pasta. It's fortifying. It's edifying. And suddenly you realize, oh, yeah, pasta. I could eat pasta every day. You slowly start turning into an Italian. It's the weirdest thing. Well, now that I'm in London, I haven't had pasta once, and I don't particularly miss it. But when I'm in Italy, god damn it, give me some bucatini, you know? We arrived in London, oh, about two weeks ago, I guess, and uh, we've got a, just a crummy little flat in a good neighborhood called Maida Vale, which is a nice neighborhood, sort of posh neighborhood. Um, a lot of Georgian houses nestled among some estates. And when I say estates, I mean like the public housing. They call them estates, you know, just like they call private schools, public schools and whatever. But uh, a lot of Bentleys in the neighborhood, a lot of Jaguars and such. And uh, London is kind of pricey these days. I mean, it's, pr it's always pricey, but I mean, food prices and restaurant prices, very pricey. The apartment we're in, very pricey. For us, you know, we're on a budget because when I say sabbatical, what I mean is unemployed. And it's, a ni it's nice that the writers went on strike, you know, because now my unemployment seems purposeful. You know, it seems deliberate. Oh, no, I'm, I can't work. I'm on strike. Sure, let's go with that. I don't know if you can hear it, but behind me in the, in the, in the background, you may hear some, um, some machinery whirring and clicking. That is our in-kitchen washing machine. An annoying thing about Europe is the uh, kitchen washing machine in Great Britain in particular. And the most annoying thing about Great Britain is the washer-dryer combo, uh, which does not work. The washer-dryer combo, the washer works fine, the dryer not at all. But they lie to you and you put your wash in for what seems like hours, and then it dries for hours, and then it comes out wet. It's an impossibility of engineering, apparently, to create a washer-actual-dryer combo. And so, you know, in this damp country of England, you're walking around with damp clothes all the time, unless you, unless you, you know, you dry them out proper with some other means other than your washer-dryer combo. <laughs> My single greatest complaint with this country so far is the washer-dryer. The, the entire laundry situation is just abominable. Also, the lack of air conditioning. Now, look, we're here in summer. It's late June. It's almost July. 
Uh, London and England, I guess, stays relatively cool, but global warming is upon us. We've had many days that were in the mid-80s, and that's okay. You walk around. It's not so humid. It's not so terrible. But when you get done, and you get done climbing the steep steps to your shitty third-floor apartment, you want to cool off, and what you end up with is you're walking into a, a, a stuffy apartment because there's no goddamn air conditioning. There weren't even any window screens. So you'd open the window and flies would be coming in. We bought our own window screens. You know, you can order these, uh, these retractable window screens. We, 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 we did that. That has uh, alleviated the problem of the flies coming in. But the heat is still a problem. We haven't been sleeping very well here in Bonnie, London. And uh, so we've been here a couple of weeks. And I find myself not doing very much at all here in Bonnie, London town. We've, uh, you know, we've done our share of walking, but not that much. You know, in Rome, we would go out, we'd walk all day. Not all day, maybe an hour. But for me, you know, that's all, that's all day. But um, here, I don't know, I don't find myself craving exploration in the same way, perhaps because London feels like a satellite city of, let's say, New York, or you could say New York is a satellite city of London. They're so similar in many ways. London's prettier. London's got uh, you know, a lot going for it, but it, but it doesn't really feel like you're abroad in any meaningful sense. There's nothing particularly foreign about it, which is fine. That's, that's neither, that's not a judgment exactly, but it doesn't produce in me the same wanderlust as say Rome did because it, it felt more like a, a place for exploration. Here I wake my, I wake up in our crummy apartment, you know, I, I, uh, browse the internet for a little while, and then make myself a couple cups of tea. No different than I would do in Savannah, really no different than I would do in Rome. But then it's sort of like, well, now what? Do I really just want to walk around Kensington? I don't know. So I'm finding myself a little uh, out of sorts, a little bit, not, not, not a lot, but a little bit out of sorts here in London, sort of thinking, okay, well, let's, let's, let's do something else. Let's, I need structure. I need something to fill my days. And uh, here we are, starting a new season of Obscure, which will satisfy at least a little bit of that desire to get something done. Now, on to the book. If you've been reading my Patreon, you saw that I had asked for suggestions. I got a bunch of great suggestions. I picked one. Uh, we ordered it. Martha ordered it for me. Um, it arrived, and it turns out that it was 750 pages long much to my astonishment. I thought, well, I can't possibly read that. It's too long. It'll take years, years to read that. Probably two years, maybe more. I don't know. So I thought, well, okay, well, I can't do that. So then I went to a bookseller and they've got, they've got a lot of booksellers here in London. I don't know if there are any more literary here than they are where, where I live, but there's, you know, in London as full of booksellers. So, but it's hard, uh, hard to find. It's British oriented and I needed an American author. So the other day we went to the natural national portrait gallery and uh, looked at portraits and, but there's an, there was a, a, a good bookstore right across the street there. Uh, we went in there, biggest, best bookstore we'd been in, went downstairs to where they had all the, the literature and basically just, just was looking, I was just going to pick some almost at random. You know, it has to meet certain requirements. It had to be an American author. It had to be a book of reasonable length. And uh, it had to be something I've never read and have no desire to read. Well, after much looking and hunting and pecking, I settled on a book, John Dos Passos's Manhattan Transfer. 
I thought to myself, wow, I, I don't want to read this. It's got Manhattan in the name. It's by John Dos Passos. I know, kind of, no, I've heard of him. Right, we'll read that. And then, I don't know. My enthusiasm flagged. I had flagged enthusiasm. Something just didn't feel right. Something, I, I felt ill at ease about it. I felt unsettled. I don't know why. Maybe I was feeling some guilt because I had picked this other book and was all excited to do it. And then I, I sort of babied out because I was like, oh, it's too long, I can't do it. All of that to say, I'm putting John Dos Passos aside. Manhattan transfer, I'm transferring you out. Uh, you're being traded to my bookshelf. I'll read you some other time. Instead, I'm picking up this doorstop of a book I have here in my hands. You can hear that. You can hear the heft of it as I as I go through the pages. It's a big old book. It's a Hawthorne classic book club edition of Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy. That is the book we will be reading. Season four, five, six, seven of Obscure. God, this is a big book. Now, why did I pick Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy? It was one of the first suggestions I got when I tossed it out. When I tossed out, who, you know, what should I read? And, and uh, somebody said it. And let me see if I can even find who said it. You should, you should read Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy. Neglecting, of course, to tell me that it was 700 pages. Season 4 suggestions I wrote. And then the very first suggestion I got by Linda G. All, an American tragedy by Theodore Dreiser, followed by six exclamation marks. And I thought to myself, well, that's got it all, doesn't it? It's got the word America in it. It's by an author, never read anything by. It's an author who I think, you know, is sort of fallen out of favor. Nobody ever talks about Teddy Dreiser these days. You never hear people just sort of chit-chatting about Theodore Dreiser. The name never comes up. It's got tragedy in it, which I like, you know. Maybe there's another murder-suicide. I like all that stuff. An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser. The very first suggestion I got, I thought, well, that, that could just be perfect until I saw the length. So here we are. Now, before I start reading, you know, I wanted to double check and make sure that I wasn't going to end up uh, screwed over again and that Theodore Dreiser is going to turn out to be British or French or, you know, Indian or Japanese or something like that. So I'll just, uh, I Googled Theodore Dreiser. I, let, I said, give me a quick bio. This is what I got. Theodore Dreiser, 1871, Terre Haute, Indiana, died 1945 in Hollywood, California. American practitioner of naturalism. Now, I think Hardy was also a naturalist, was he not? Leading figure in a national literary movement that replaced the observance of Victorian notions of propriety with the unflinching presentation of real life subject matter. So, you know, this could be Hardy-esque, which would be good, I guess, because I did like Hardy. And, you know, among other themes, his novels explore the new social problems that had arisen in a rapidly industrializing America, similar to Hardy. You know, Hardy was concerned with the dissolution of rural life in, uh, in, uh, in England. Sounds like Dreiser sort of dealing with the same thing. I'm just sort of uh, uh, skimming here because, you know, I don't, want, I don't want to read too much. Oh, he wrote Sister Carrie, which I've heard of. 
Have I read Sister Carrie? It's possible. It's possible. I don't remember. If I do, I don't remember what it's about. She's got immorality. It sold fewer than 500 copies, Sister Carrie. Wow. All right, so I'm not going to keep reading because I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything for myself. But we. Okay, so now we know kind of who he was. I mean, you know, American for one thing. Born in Indiana, that's a good thing. Right in the heart of the country, corn country. You like that? Died in Hollywood, California. So he turned. He turned into a sellout. You like that? And uh, and and he's trotting on somewhat familiar territory, but from an American point of view, we like all of that. Shall we begin? Shall we? Shall we begin? Shall we? Shall we dispense with any further adieu and begin an American tragedy? Uh, I say we shall, and we will in a moment when we return on obscure. Back on Obscure with An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser, Hawthorne Classics Book Club Edition, printed in Great Britain. Uh, this is not an edition you're going to find just about anywhere else. It looks like it was really cheaply made, like, like uh, you know, we ordered it on Amazon and somebody had like a, had like a dot matrix computer a printer and they were like, hey, print out an print out a American Tragedy. And somebody said, that whole thing? And somebody else said, yeah, we got another order. So what I like about this edition is that there's no, you know, in a lot of these books, there's like a, there's a foreword, there's a, there's a, there's literary uh, criticism, there's, there's lots of pages of, of uh, publishing information. This one, I just opened, and as soon as I open, I turn the page, it says book one. So we're, we're, re- we're ready to go. It was published in 1925. So let's just place ourselves in that time period, this is F. Scott Fitzgerald's era. This is the Roaring Twenties. This is Flappers and Moonshine. Is it Moonshine? Uh, when was Prohibition? Now I got to look up when Prohibition was. When did Prohibition start? When I just got got the old research machine. I brought it over with me. Had to crate it up in special crates, you know, to bring it over and pack it in big big steamer trunks. 1920 to 1933. I didn't realize it was that long. 13 years. All right, so we're in Prohibition. We're in America. American Tragedy. Book One, Chapter One. Dusk of a summer night. Well, that, I mean, we're, I mean, I'll just interrupt myself already. I mean, look, if I keep interrupting myself, we'll never get through it, but that's what we do. Here on Obscure, we read a work of classic literature out loud and comment on it as we go. And if I were to dispense with that, well, I I wouldn't have a podcast, would I? So it is summer. As I read this, it is not dusk. Uh, I begin this around noontime here in Bonnie, London town, dusk of a summer night. And the tall walls of the commercial heart of an American city of perhaps 400,000 inhabitants. Such walls, as in time, may linger as a mere fable. 
And uh, look, I, I've just seen proof of such walls, the Aurelian walls, you know, that encircle Rome. You got to pass through them to get into the heart of the city. And they're just fabulous. These big monstrosities, not monstrosities because they're, they're attractive, but these big monstrous works, these engineering marvels that were constructed, what, 2,000 years ago, still standing. And up the broad street, now comparatively hushed, a little band of six, a man of about 50, short, stout, with bushy hair protruding from under a round black felt hat, a most unimportant-looking person who carried a small portable organ such as is customarily used by street preachers and singers, and with him a woman perhaps five years his junior, taller, not so broad, but solid of frame and vigorous, very plain in face and dress, and yet not homely, leading with one hand a small boy of seven, and in the other carrying a Bible and several hymn books. With these three, but walking independently behind, was a girl of fifteen, a boy of twelve, and another girl of nine, all following obediently, but not too enthusiastically, in the wake of the others. Um, this will be a familiar situation to anyone with teenaged children. You have the young child happily accompanying the parents, the older children sulking behind. It was hot. This is me returning to the book, yet with a sweet languor about it all. Crossing at right angles, the great thoroughfare on which they walked was a second canyon-like way, threaded by throngs in vehicles and various lines of cars which clanged their bells and made such progress as they might amid swiftly moving streams of traffic. Yet the little group seemed unconscious of anything save a set purpose to make its way between the contending lines of traffic and pedestrians which flowed by them. Having reached an intersection, this side of the second principal thoroughfare, really just an alley between two tall structures, now quite bare of life of any kind, the man put down the organ, which the woman immediately opened, setting up a music rack upon which she placed a wide, flat hymn book. Then, handing the book Bible to the man, she fell back in line with him while the twelve-year-old boy put down a small camp stool in front of the organ. The man, the father as he chanced to be, looked about him with seeming wide-eyed assurance and announced, without appearing to care whether he had any auditors or not, We will sing a hymn of praise so that any who may wish to acknowledge the Lord may join us. Will you oblige Hester? At this, the eldest girl, who until now had attempted to appear as unconscious and unaffected as possible, bestowed her rather slim and as yet undeveloped figure upon the camp chair and turned the leaves of the hymn book, pumping the organ, while her mother observed... I should think it might be nice to sing 27 tonight, How Sweet the Balm of Jesus' Love. So here we have a scene in any city, let us say a 400,000 inhabitant city, maybe something smaller than Chicago, maybe something like 
Indianapolis. And you have a family of, what was it, six or so, walking down the main boulevard there amongst the tall buildings, the skyscrapers, and uh, setting up shop at a little alleyway to sing the praises of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They set up the organ, the camp stool. They, uh, they begin reciting, or singing, I should say. And Hester, Hester is the one who, uh, what is she doing? She's turning the leaves of hymn book. Hester, of course, the famous Hester Prim, right? From, what's she from us? The Scarlet Letter? The sinner, Hester Prim. Let's just double check that so that in case I decide to go off on flights of literary fancy, I'm not mistaken. And then that would be embarrassing. Hester Prim is the protagonist of Nathaniel Hawthorne's 1850 The Scarlet Letter. She is portrayed as a woman condemned by her Puritan neighbors. Uh... Among the first and most important female protagonists in American literature, Hester Prynne. Now, I don't know whether this Hester has anything to do with that Hester. We'll keep an eye on it. But one thing I'm noticing immediately is the language. The language itself is uh, much denuded as compared to the more ornate prose of our fellow authors across the pond. I don't know if this is an emergent American style or if this just signifies a, a slightly later publication date than the other books we have read. 1925 is the most recent book we've read. I don't remember when Jude the Obscure was published. I feel like 1870-something? Jude the Obscure. I'm back on the research machine. Jude the Obscure publication date. Let's see when that was. Publication date. 1895. Okay, so not that much uh, after Jude the Obscure, and yet the language is markedly different, is it not? I mean, it feels Midwestern, this language. It feels like it's coming out of the long, flat plains of the American Middle West. It feels a little sparser, a little less uh, embossed. It feels like the plain-speaking farmer a little bit more than, say, Thomas Hardy did, who was not a farmer or plain speaking in any real way. His language was far more heightened. Back to the book. So she says, I think it might be nice to sing 27 tonight, how sweet the balm of Jesus's love. By this time, various homeward bound individuals of diverse grades and walks of life Noticing the small group disposing itself in this fashion, hesitated for a moment to eye them askance, or pause to ascertain the character of their work. This hesitancy, construed by the man apparently to constitute attention, however mobile, was seized upon by him, and he began addressing them as though they were specifically here to hear him. Let us all sing 27 then, how sweet the balm of Jesus' love. At this the young girl began to interpret the melody upon the organ, emitting a thin, though correct strain, at the same time joining her rather high soprano with that of her mother, together with the rather dubious baritone 
of the father. The other children piped weakly along, the boy and girl having taken hymn books from the small pile stacked upon the organ. As they sang, this nondescript and indifferent street audience gazed, held by the peculiarity of such an unimportant-looking family publicly raising its collective voice against the vast skepticism and apathy of life. Now, I like that very much. Here now, the first, let's say, uh, thematic turn of phrase, and the first indication that we are indeed in the land of naturalism. That phrase right there, I've already lost it in my head, the vast skepticism and apathy of life. Here they are singing praises to the Lord, which of course suggests the very opposite of apathy. It suggests a kind, nurturing, gentle, and loving, omniscient figure gazing down upon them, seeking uh, 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 their benevolence and finding his benevolence in return. And yet our narrator holds himself apart and says, Oh, these fools, do they not know that life is skeptical and apathetic? So we're already setting the seeds of tragedy. Nay, an American tragedy, are we not? Um, but we see here, you know, Dreiser in full command of his language, knows what he's doing, knows where he's heading. Some were interested or moved sympathetically by the rather tame and inadequate figure of the girl at the organ, others by the impractical and materially inefficient texture of the father, whose weak blue eyes and rather flabby but poorly clothed figure bespoke more of failure than anything else. Of the group, the mother alone stood out as having that force and determination which, however blind or erroneous, makes for self-preservation, if not success, in life. I mean, just think about that for a second. The mother alone stood out as having the force and determination, however blind or erroneous, makes for self-preservation, if not success in life. So we're seeing, of all people, the mother, the female, the matriarch of the family, sort of leading this brood through her force and determination. She, more than any of the others, stood up with an ignorant, yet somehow respectable air of conviction. If you had watched her, her hymn book dropped to her side, her glance directed straight before her into space, you would have said, well, here is one who, whatever her defects, probably does what she believes as nearly as possible. I've got a airplane going on behind me. Apparently they have regular uh, aircraft here in Europe, which is fine by me. A kind of hard fighting faith in the wisdom and mercy of that definite overruling and watchful power which she proclaimed was written in her every feature and gesture. The love of Jesus saves me whole. The love of God my steps control, she sang resonantly, if slightly nasally, 
between the towering walls of the adjacent buildings. She, this small and somewhat wretched figure, stands there, humble, faithful. I got to sneeze. This has been a real problem. Let me tell you something. Oh, I got to sneeze and I don't think it's coming. The allergy situation in Europe has been atrocious. First in Rome, now here. Just when I thought I was getting over my allergies in Rome, we left there and and found ourselves on this miserable aisle where the cottonwood trees are just going apeshit, filling my nostrils with their poison, causing me untold sneezes throughout the day. Ugh. I got to get head over to Boots. You know, they don't have CVS here in, in England or in Italy, but they got a, a pharmacy called Boots. I got to head over there when I'm done with this and get myself some antihistamines or something because it's just been rough. But here's the, here she is, this stolid, faithful individual dwarfed by man and the buildings of man and the architecture of this city, yet steadfastly proclaiming her love of the Lord, which surpasses even man's finest works. The boy moved restlessly from one foot to the other, keeping his eyes down and for the most part only half-singing. A tall and as yet slight figure, surmounted by an interesting head and face, white skin, dark hair, he seemed more keenly observant and decidedly more sensitive than most of the others appeared indeed to resent and even to suffer from the position in which he found himself. Plainly pagan rather than religious, life interested him, although as yet he was not fully aware of this. All that could be truly said of him now was that there was no definite appeal in all this for him. He was too young, his mind much too responsive to phases of beauty and pleasure which had little, if anything, to do with the remote and cloudy romance which swayed the minds of his mother and father. We're seeing a skepticism, are we not here? A skepticism of the supernatural from Mr. Dreiser, similarly skeptical as Mr. Hardy. And I'm trying to think of our other authors, Mary Shelley, who wrote uh, her book, what, 100 years before Hardy, or maybe a little less, 75 years before, something like that. You know, certainly in touch with the supernatural. And Ms. Bronte, who grew up in a parsonage, and whose book, I would say, also had a well i wouldn't say it was romantic it was gothic it wasn't naturalistic really in any in any real sense um but seemed to imply was, yeah embrace the supernatural i mean it's a ghost story after all is it not in many ways what we haven't had to this point is a faithful let's say unquestioning religious author we have yet to have i mean we don't know yet look i'm on page 3 of dreiser Maybe all this turns around, but we have yet to see like a C.S. Lewis, somebody whose work uh, is meant to enfold us into religion's embrace. If anything, what we're seeing is the opposite of that uh, in all of our books to this point, maybe a gentle prying of the fingers from the clutch of religion 
as the steadying, amplifying voice in life. I don't know, but it's, it's interesting to note. Also interesting to note, if you're interested, um, I, I have moved away from my persistent atheism slash agnosticism into something that I can't quite identify terminologically, I guess into maybe a, a sort of non-dualism. I wrote about it on my Substack, not very well, but if you're interested, you can go over there and read what I wrote about it. Okay, cloudy romance, which swayed the minds of his mother and father. Indeed, the home life of which this boy found himself a part, and the various contacts, material and psychic, which thus far had been his, did not tend to convince him of the reality and force of all that his mother and father seemed so certainly to believe and say. Rather, they seemed more or less troubled in their lives, at least materially. His father was always reading the Bible and speaking in meeting at different places, especially in the mission, and mission is in quotes, which he and his mother conducted not so far from this corner. At the same time as he understood it, they collected money from various interested or charitably inclined businessmen here and there who appeared to believe in such philanthropic work. Yet the family was always hard up, also that is in quotes, never very well clothed and deprived of many comforts and pleasures which seemed common enough to others. And his father and mother were constantly proclaiming the love and mercy and care of God for him and for all. Plainly, there was something wrong somewhere. He could not get it all straight, but still he could not help respecting his mother, a woman whose force and earnestness, as well as her sweetness, appealed to him. Despite much mission work and family cares, she managed to be fairly cheerful, or at least sustaining, often declaring most emphatically, God will provide, or God will show the way, especially in times of too great stress about food or clothes. Yet apparently, in spite of this, as he and all the other children could see, God did not show any very clear way, even though there was always an extreme necessity for his favorable intervention in their affairs. Now, if we're going to get through this book, I, I, I think I have to record slightly longer episodes. Uh, I normally would have stopped several minutes ago, but uh, I'm going to I'm going to continue on just a bit more, and we'll I'll sort of feel out you know exactly how long these episodes should be, but they're probably going to be a bit longer than they have been in the past. Tonight, walking up the great street with his sisters and brother. He wished that they need not do this anymore, or at least that he need not be a part of it. Other boys did not do such things, and besides, somehow it seemed shabby and even degrading. Well, yeah, standing on a street corner, doing street preaching, begging for money, singing songs, praising the Lord, it is shabby, it is degrading for a kid, for a teenager. It's one thing. You know, if you, if, if you, if you put on a suit and bow tie of your own accord and get yourself a soapbox and stand upon it and proclaim your truth. Like, that is one thing. But to be forced into it, to be forced into this indentured servitude by your parents, that just seems altogether another thing, 
uh, entirely. You know, you feel like a circus act. You know, and you don't want to be a circus act if that's not your choice. Well, it doesn't sound like he has a choice in the matter. On more than one occasion before he had been taken on the street in this fashion, other boys had called to him and made fun of his father because he was always publicly emphasizing his religious beliefs or convictions. Thus, in one neighborhood in which they had lived, when he was but a child of seven, his father, having always preluded every conversation with praise the Lord, he heard boys call, Here comes old praise the Lord Griffiths, where they would call out after him, Hey, you're the fella whose sister plays the organ. Is there anything else she can play? Wow, that is... Woo-wee, that is just beyond the pale. Is there anything else she can play? My goodness. That's the kind of funky city talk you're going to get from ne'er-do-wells and scamps. Is there anything else she can play? I don't like that at all. Anything else she can play, like the skin flute? They didn't say that. I'm, I'm adding that, but I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. It's, it's, uh, it's inappropriate. And if there's one thing I strive to be on this podcast above... All other things, it is appropriate. What does he always want to go around saying praise the Lord for? Other people don't do it. It was that old mass yearning for a likeness in all things that troubled them and him. Yes, yes, that old mass. Mass meaning group of people, meaning the summation of all. Yearning for a likeness in all things that troubled them and him. Don't all teenage boys or all teenagers in general just want to fit in? We're not looking to stand out. We're looking to be accepted. We're looking to be enveloped by our peers, accepted in our communities. Neither his father nor his mother was like other people because they were always making so much of religion. And now at last, they were making a business of it. On this night, in this great street, with its cars and crowds and tall buildings, he felt ashamed, dragged out of normal life, to be made a show and jest of. The handsome automobiles that sped by, the loitering pedestrians moving off to what interests and comforts he could only surmise, the gay pairs of young people laughing and jesting, and the kids staring, all troubled him with a sense of something different, better, more beautiful than his, or rather their, life. And now units of this vagrom and unstable street throng, which was forever shifting and changing about them, seemed to sense the psychologic error of all this insofar as these children were concerned, for they would nudge one another, the more sophisticated and indifferent, lifting an eyebrow and smiling contemptuously, the more sympathetic or experienced, commenting on the useless presence of these children. I see these people around here every night now, two or three times a week anyhow. This from a young clerk who had just met his girl and was escorting her toward a restaurant. They're just working some religious dodge or other, I guess. That oldest boy don't want to be here. He feels out of place. I can see that. It ain't right to make a kid like that come out unless he wants to. He can't understand all this stuff anyhow. This from an idler and loafer of about 40. One of those odd hangers-on about the commercial heart of a city, addressing a pausing and seemingly amiable stranger. Yeah, I guess that's so, the other assented, 
taking in the peculiar cast of the boy's head and face. In view of the uneasy and self-conscious expression, can you hear the spin cycle going? My God, it's like a thunderclap in here. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a uh, above, uh, it's like a above ground and overland train. I say, I say, you hear me stuttering? I sounded like Foghorn Leghorn. I say, I say, it's like an overhand, overland train. Yeah, I guess that's so. The other assented, taking in the peculiar cast of the boy's head and face. In view of the uneasy and self-conscious expression upon the face whenever it was lifted, one might have intelligently suggested that it was a little unkind as well as idle to thus publicly force upon a temperament as yet unfitted to absorb their import religious and psychic services best suited to reflective temperaments of mature years. Yet, so it was. And we'll end there as the as the uh, washing machine gets fit to explode. Sounds like it's ready to just shatter like an a bomb. But there we are. We, there we are. We've set the scene. We've set a quite a pretty scene for ourselves, have we not? A, a small family, the Partridge family, setting out on a street corner in between. Well, not his corner, but in the middle of the street, between two buildings, setting up shop there, singing their psalms getting ready to preach, getting ready to ask for money, and among them a boy, a teenage boy, who wants nothing to do with it. Have we not all found ourselves in such a situation, embarrassed by our families, feeling uh, out of place and out of sorts among them? Maybe they've embarrassed us at a restaurant or at a school function or just walking with us down the sidewalk saying and doing dumb parent things. We've all been there. This is a little more elevated though because this is the family business. This cheap sport of asking for donations in the name of the Lord. Uh, And we'll leave it there, you know? First episode down. Season four of Obscure has begun. The reading, I suspect, will go a little bit quicker because the language is a little less elevated, fewer polysyllabic words, fewer footnotes, easier for me to understand upon first read, uh, more easily digestible to the American ear. So perhaps we will get through this, all 750 pages of it, before too long. So we'll we'll conclude. Great to be back. Uh, Looking forward to embarking on this journey with you. And we will do so when we meet again on another satisfactory episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedron. We rely on you, the listeners, for support, so please go to patreon.com slash Black, and you will get early access to ad-free episodes and more content from me. That's patreon.com slash Black. See you next time.